Hello, I'm Fatma Ahmed, your host and guide in this series of Taking Apart Terror, the West Africa edition. Together, we'll analyze the realities of violent extremism in West Africa and delve into the local, regional and international efforts and initiatives to prevent and counter violent extremism. In today's episode, we'll explore the question of who are the Islamic State of West Africa province? Joining me as we unpack this question are Bulama Bukhati, Senior Fellow in the Extremism Policy Unit at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, and also currently the Vice President of Programs and DGR at Bridgeway Foundation. We've also got Ambassador Ahmed Bolori, Executive Director of Exit Lanes and Special Advisor to the Kogi State Governor, and Malik Samuel, Lake Chad Basin Program Researcher from the Institute for Security Studies, Africa. So let's get started. A lot of the people who have dialed in uh, to listen to this podcast today are wondering, who are the Islamic State of West Africa province, ISWAP? Can we start by telling us who is this group? Bulama, would you like to kick us off on the discussion? Sure. Uh, this is a great question uh, to start on. Um, the Islamic State West Africa province is in Arabic called Wilayatul Gharibi Ifriqiya, and as the name implies, it is a faction of Boko Haram that is affiliated to the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And this group has an estimated 3,500 to 5,000 fighters who are wreaking havoc in the border regions of the Lake Chad, which is the border that brings together Nigeria, Niger, Cameroon, and Chad. And this group has been active since 2016. Its fighters see themselves as fighters of the Islamic State, and they see the territory where they operate and especially where they administer as part of the territory of the Islamic State. And their governor, called Wali, sees himself as a representative of the ISIS leader. And this group is different from other factions of Boko Haram because, as we would come to know, there are three factions. This group in particular is notorious for focusing attacks on security forces government officials and civilians that it defines at, as enemies. But they do not attack civilians generally as other factions of Boko Haram do. And therefore, they are engaged in this dangerous game of winning the hearts and minds of locals, not only through preaching, but also through charity, through administration, building infrastructure, and the likes. And uh, yeah, that's uh, Islamic State West Africa province in short. Thank you, uh, Balama. Um, very clear. Um, so, of course, often uh, people wonder, are they related to Daesh? What is the distinction here? Would someone be able to expand on the difference between ISWAP and how do they relate to Daesh? Sure. Uh, so Daesh, that's the, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, whose Arabic name is Daesh, uh, has a global agenda. It is a group that sees itself as a collection of people who want to dominate the whole world. And therefore, they have been commissioning affiliates, uh, calling them provinces across the globe. And part of that is Africa. In West Africa, they succeeded in recruiting Boko Haram, a Nigerian group that has been active since 2003, but became violent in 2009. They got allegiance from Boko Haram in the year 2015. And from that period, Boko Haram's name changed to Islamic State West Africa province. And as it is now, the way they are related is that, as I said on the top, ISWAP sees its territory as an extension of the ISIS territory, and its fighters see themselves as part of the ISIS caliphate. 
And the way they support each other is that when Boko Haram attacks uh, locally, when ISWAP attacks locally, they allow the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria to take uh, credit for the attack. In return, ISIS uh, helps them with trainings, with theological guidance, sometimes with finances, but also with settling disputes amongst ISWAP's ranks. And so you could say it is a symbiotic relationship which allows ISIS to use attacks by ISWAP to claim this global brand that it is hungry for, but also allows ISWAP to get resources, validation, and uh, theological guidance from ISIS. Thank you, Bilam. So clearly, uh, you know, uh, they are interrelated in the sense of uh, being able to you benefit from their training and ideologies, but still retaining their regional um, identity. Malik, maybe you can explain to us, has it always been this way? What is the history of ISWAP and how did they emerge? And then how is it different today? I think it's uh, in terms of um, the relationship between um, ISWAP and ISIS, it's always been like this in terms of um, the connection. Like Bulama rightly mentioned, the connection actually was solidified in 2015 when, um, as a group, Boko Haram pledged allegiance um, under Shekau, but then the internal dispute within, within Boko Haram led to the breakaway from other members of the group, led by Mamanur and uh, the son of the late founder, Musabam Albanawi. When they broke away from Boko Haram and moved to their current location, you know, so ISIS recognized the group and also recognized um, Albanawi as a leader. But more importantly, I think, ISWAP was able to do that because while Shekau pledged the allegiance to um, to ISIS in 2015, the line of communication between Boko Haram and ISIS was always maintained by the guys who later broke away. So it was easy for them to maintain that communication between uh, between themselves and ISIS, thereby cutting Shekau off in terms of um, his reach to ISIS. So that relationship has always been like that. So from 2016. Uh, when you look at the attacks, the pattern, the propaganda, the video, everything is modeled on what um, ISIS did during its um, its reign of terror. You know, uh, in terms of uh, the military support, in terms of the tactics and uh, and everything. So all this expertise that it got from ISIS. No, I completely agree with Malik. And if we took a step back, Boko Haram actually, as a group, started in the year two thousand three, and. Uh, the person who founded it called uh, Muhammad Yusuf. And Muhammad Yusuf, uh, together with Boko Haram's founding fathers like Abu Bakr Shekau, who became the group's leader later, and Mamman Noor, who became ISWAP's uh, spiritual leader in 2015-2016, the three of them, along with others, worked aggressively in the Lektad region, particularly in northeastern Nigeria from 2003 to 2009, to recruit young people using Islamic scripture, history, especially pre-colonial history, as well as uh, by exploiting the socio-economic and political grievances in that part of the country. And by 2009, they had formed a mass movement with thousands of young people as members. In that 2009, they clashed with Nigeria's authorities where hundreds of members were killed and including the group's uh, founder and leader, Muhammad Yusuf. And from that moment, Abu Bakr Sheikh took over as the leader of the group and continued to spearhead Boko Haram's activities, assassinations, especially of politicians and uh, renowned Islamic clerics, and then later uh, led the group's insurgency in the Northeast. And by 2015, 
Abu Bakr Sheikh was courted by ISIS and he ended up pledging allegiance to ISIS, which then changed Boko Haram's nomenclature from Jama'atu Ahli Sunnah Lidda'wati Wal Jihad, which is their official name, to ISWAB, the Islamic State West Africa province. And Sheikh's designation also changed. He was the Imam of Boko Haram the overall leader that is before 2015 when he pledged allegiance. But after pledging allegiance, he became Wali, that's governor of uh, ISIS in the Lectured region. Fantastic uh, intervention on both sides. I actually wanted to probe a bit further because, you know, uh, Bulama, you just talked about, you know, the chronological history of ISWAP, but the fact that there are also three major groups, you know, uh, Boko Haram, who is affiliated, uh, who's pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda, uh, Israel with, with Daesh and, and so forth. But it's currently in the context of the Lake Chad Basin. Is Israel the only uh, violent group in the region or are others still operating in the region? And that's for any of you uh, to respond to. No, I mean, ISWAP is the biggest group, as Malik pointed out, uh, in the Lake Chad region, uh, but also is seen as the most successful ISIS affiliate in Africa. And that's why in places like the Sahel, Mozambique, the DRC, what ISIS is trying to do is to roll out the ISWAP model. But to your question, Fatma, I, ISWAP is not the only group operating. Along ISWAP, uh, the Sheikh faction of Boko Haram does have a couple of hundreds of fighters. Uh, you could say even a thousand fighters that are fighting in the lectured region. Thank you so much, uh, Madame. That was very interesting, especially in the, in the sense of understanding how their modus operandi is different uh, from o- other groups, uh, in particular Boko Haram in this case. So, Ambassador Balari, we've just heard from both Malik and Balama speaking about some of the differences uh, of ISWAP and Boko Haram, but also learning about how uh, their modus operandi in the region. It would be great to hear from your perspective on what is being done at a state level and what differences you're also seeing in the response to addressing ISWAP and other violent extremist groups. I think this is an important question, uh, question, but most importantly, I do not speak on behalf of the state and uh, the government I work with does not directly uh, you know, have the responsibility of fighting the insurgent groups to bring an end to them, but we make a lot of complementary efforts. And speaking from the non-profit organization that I serve, speaking from that point of view, I would say there is really nothing much that has been done in terms of change of approach or change of the way, you know, the engagements are going on from the authority side on ending the insurgent groups. And uh, like we have rightly pointed initially, things have evolved now over time and it has gotten to a point that people are now feeling normal. Most things are now, the operations are now becoming part of the culture of the people, part of the ways of lives of the people. And as I have mentioned before, I have also said now uh, the resistance from the people uh, in terms of making efforts, even in terms of criticizing government to ensure that all these things fall in place now are only done by few people. Thank you, Ambassador. Bulama, you, you wrote about this as well, uh, about, uh, I think your title was, it's a bit tricky when I'm exploring the differences between ISWAP and uh, Boko Haram. What are some of your own observations uh, to complement the ambassador? There is a clear difference between Boko Haram's tactics. When I say Boko Haram, I mean Sheikh's Boko Haram and ISWAP. And what you would expect from the Nigerian government and its partners would have been a tailored approach. 
uh, towards each uh, of the factions. For example, ISWAP, in my opinion, presents a bigger challenge in the sense that it is engaged in the battle for the hearts and minds of people. It is portraying itself to be civilian friendly. And if you want to defeat a group like that, you would have to continue the military effort, but also do more of civilian military engagement, do more of addressing the root causes, such as the socio-political grievances. I mean, the historical factors that are being exploited so that you would end up winning the battle for the hearts and minds. Of course, uh, one important thing in this uh, battle for the hearts and minds is working with mainstream Muslim clerics in the fight against ISWA because ISWA presents itself as the correct interpretation of Islam and as the representative of original Islam. No, thank you, uh, Balama uh, and Ambassador Laurie. I think what you uh, both have managed to do is just like describe what the complex context is, not only in Nigeria, but the broader Lake Chad Basin, and that there are opportunities uh, of exploiting this rivalry between the two groups. And of course, in the subsequent episode, we will be talking about some of the programmatic interventions that exist, the importance of including communities, but also how ISWAP and other groups act as a service delivery to the community and how can we counter some of those efforts. So with that in mind and looking at the context of the broader Lake Chad Basin and how ISWAP has been evolving and the historical differences of where the allegiances are, what are some of your final recommendations and reflections for those listening into this uh, first podcast series uh, on this topic? What should they take away and what are some of the things that you want to leave them with? Perhaps, Malik, you want to start us off with your reflection. Thank you very much. I'd like to, I think the last point made by by Bulama for me makes a whole um, lot of sense. The approach, what we've seen from whether Jazz or Israel over the years, is that whatever strategy the military or the government puts in place, these groups always adapt to whatever strategy is put in place. So there's a need for government to always, I think, be a step ahead. It's true that military operation is important, but what the lecture basin has shown is that that is not a solution that is viable, that is uh, that is lasting. Military operations alone cannot end violent extremism. So what you need to do is to look at the other options, the soft options that will complement the military operations. As Bulama mentioned, the need to um, involve religious leaders at community level. I think you also need to involve community leaders, uh, whether um, religious or, or political, but it is important that you involve community members in whatever approach you're putting in place because you cannot alienate them. If ISWAP is involved in the winning of the hearts and minds of these people and you rely alone on military operations, you definitely will make it easy for ISWAP particularly to be able to recruit these people and reach out to these people, which is specifically what the group, uh, you know, the group is trying to do. So I would say relying on military solutions alone is uh, or heavily is not the way to go because this conflict has evolved over the years. So we need to also um, evolve our strategy to also look at other softer approaches in, in dealing with the issues, especially we look at the issues of governance because that is key in how ISWAP is able to reach people. The lack of access to basic amenities, you know, um, infrastructure, especially in remote villages where it is difficult for uh, for government to establish any sort of a presence. So it is important that government is able to reach people in these areas with um, concrete steps in order to counter whatever approach or whatever benefit these people seem or feel they get from Israel. Thank you. 
Thank you, Manik. Uh, very concrete recommendations and reflections of how to counter as well. Ambassador Bellario, do you want to compliment and also share some of your uh, learnings and uh, takeaways for this podcast? It is very important to note that this battle is taking different shapes and different dimensions. It is no longer what is known. For instance, now, what the public know, what the layman knows, is just Boko Haram. And here in this, our interaction, uh, we are discussing about the group splitting into three the Shekau, the Iswab, and the other ones. This means there is a lot that has to be done on the part of the people. Uh, the public should also be aware of how these people operate and how they do most of the things to be able to uh, block, uh, you know, most importantly, their source of recruitment because a lot has to be done in, in the counter-narrative aspect because you cannot say right now as we speak, the authorities uh, have said that they have accepted over 20,000 repentant Boko Harams over this period. And still, we still have fighters and killings are ongoing, bombings are ongoing. Yes, of course, there is a significant reduction in most of these things which could possibly be credited to the repentance and the rehabilitation programs. But uh, most importantly, there is need to invest a lot in the counter-narrative aspect because these same people in some communities, yes, they forcefully get people to recruit them into their evil doings. But in some other places, you know, the narratives, they, they, they pass on to the people and how they engage people in a psychological way is something that requires a serious attention and much investment in that to build on the counter-narrative mechanism and to expand it even larger and to continue to expose uh, you know, their, their mode of uh, operation, engagement, and even recruitment and expansion. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador. And, and, and you touched upon so many new elements, uh, you know, the importance of the uh, counter-narrative efforts, but also about learning from previous experiences that have been successful where the communities are experiencing, you know, relatively peace. How do we learn from that and continue to be adaptable and, and evolving? No, if I may, um, I, I would just want to make a few quick points uh, as my ending reflections. Um, the first is to say that if you looked at the data, you would see that the number of fatalities have fallen last year and uh, the first six months of this year. That's partly because of Nigerian and uh, the lectured region government's uh, security efforts, but it is mainly because of ISWAP's deliberate effort to not target civilians. And unfortunately, what that false in number does is that it gives us this false sense of safety or security. When in actual fact, as we speak today, ISWAP is holding significant portion of Nigeria's territory, and they are implementing what they call their own version of Islamic law, uh, building infrastructure and helping communities. I mean, this may, the fall in numbers, in fatality numbers may be good for the short term, but it is a very dangerous thing in the medium and long term for ISWAP to continue to win over civilians. The second is, I think it is important for governments across the lectured region to understand that no single country can succeed in this war. They have got to work together, not just in the security and intelligence front, but also in addressing the grievances. And finally, I think it is good for the Nigerian government 
to see international humanitarian organizations as partners in this fight. And I can tell you, as someone who travels frequently to the field, organizations working on the ground are doing a great job in helping communities. And without that help, communities will become more vulnerable to Boko Haram's recruitment and they will end up joining Boko Haram. Thank you so much, Barama, for, for those um, really succinct uh, recommendations and reflections and, and really emphasizing the importance of partnership and those um, with various different stakeholders, including the humanitarians, to respond to the community needs. And that's it for today's episode. But thank you so much, Bulama Malik and Ambassador Bilari, for helping us guide us through these discussions. In the next episode, we'll be asking, what do ISWAP say and what do they do? Please follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Fatma Ahmed. Until next time, goodbye.